Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. I never like to assume that listeners will be into this or that type of movie, and as it happens, I also like to bring together many kinds of movies. This week's deluxe episode is a case in point. We haven't talked too much about horror movies on the podcast lately, and so I was happy to get the chance to talk to Rebecca Hall about her role in The Night House, directed by David Bruckner. I found The Night House to be an effective horror movie about grief, and we'll hear more about it later. But first, I wanted to preview a few titles that will be coming up this fall that we haven't covered yet. So I'm sharing my conversation with Giovanni Marchini Camia, a critic and editor who attended the Cannes Film Festival. We catch up with a few key titles that premiered there and will screen in New York and or Toronto. Bruno Dumont's Dazzling Satire, France, starring Léa Seydoux, Gaspar Noé's Vortex, a change of pace about an older couple dealing with dementia, and Hong Sang-soo's In Front of Your Face, his latest film for now. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. Please welcome uh, the critic and, and editor and a man of many hats, Giovanni Makinikamia. Welcome, Giovanni. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, I, I just also realized that we, we haven't talked on the podcast before, so I'm, I'm glad that you were able to come on. I think, you know, I think there are a couple of films later in the festival that uh, didn't really come up yet. And let's talk about um, France, for starters. That's the mm-hmm. Bruno Dumont movie with Léa Seydoux. Um, I'm not even going to try to summarize it because I have a feeling that's not really going to get anywhere towards what the experience of the movie is like. So I'll uh, leave that to you. What's the movie about and what did you think of it? Uh, The movie is about, it's a satire of of our present, specifically France and the Parisian society, but I think it it implicates us all. And uh, France is the name of the main character played by Léa Seydoux. She's some sort of superstar journalist. Like uh, She has um, a show on TV and she's so famous that there's a bunch of scenes where she's walking around town and people ask for selfies with her. She's, I don't know, crazy viewers and so forth. And she... She does very sensationalist reports of current events. And there's a scene early on where she travels to somewhere in North Africa and meets Tuareg fighters who are fighting ISIS. And it's this the scene where basically she tells them, you know, say this. And uh, this, this the recurring joke in the film that Dumont does in a number of scenes is that she'll have this very serious conversation with somebody on, on camera and then she'll be like, okay, now counter shot. And she'll do this same same conversation again. It's just he's highlighting how staged it all is. And in uh, French, the staging is called mise en scène. So he's in that way juxtaposing it to cinema. But clearly, he holds cinema in much higher esteem than um, the faked reality of television. And so France is super successful. And then one day she hits a young man, a young immigrant man with her car. And for some reason, completely unexplained, it, it causes a complete breakdown of her worldview. She, she quits her job and decides that she has to give herself to, to others. It's like a 
I I connected to Saint Francis, the guy who you know it was rich, and he eventually a beggar caused the breakdown of his worldview, and then he gave away all his possession and lived poor and so forth. And but that doesn't last very long, and then very quickly she's back on her show, but it has left some scar this breakdown. And she, even though she's very successful and she keeps doing these um, these TV shows there's complete tears coming down her her face and it has this um yeah like as in many many dumont films it has this strong christian iconography and but he's the way i saw this film is that he's much more vicious than in previous film even though he's kind of known to be a vicious filmmaker i felt here he really didn't like the people he was filming he doesn't like the society he sees it as really corrupt and I'm not sure he sees a chance for redemption. And I thought that Lea Seydoux was, she's really good at this film. She's a brilliant performance, but I thought it was a kind of a mean meta casting because I don't know if people abroad are aware that Lea Seydoux comes from an incredible, incredibly rich family. And on one side of the family, there's the founder of Pate. On the other side is Gaumont. And you watch pretty much every other French film you watch. Her dad is the producer. I can't remember his first name, but Seydoux is always amongst the producers. Mm -hmm. And to put her in that role was kind of brilliant and kind of very mean. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that, but that does kind of uh, check out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, especially since he's had his recent films and, you know, also generally, but, you know, he's been sort of these, uh, I don't know, like affectionately bizarre uh, Mm. behavior and village milieu, you know, the Petit Cancam movies. Those are movies where he seems to be admiring some kind of like homegrown kind of energies and it sounds like this is like everything else that he hates this <laughs> is like the artificial world the world of, of commerce and most importantly i guess the a world that world being run by i guess someone of her class in a way mm-hmm. it sounds like that yeah no absolutely and it's all in paris i mean uh if i, if I remember correctly there's only one other film of his that's set partly in paris it's hadewich and there he's not quite as well, it's, yeah, it's comparable. But here, really, Paris is just awful. And there's a scene at the end of the film where the Lea Seydoux's character France goes to the to Nord, the, the area where he, he's from, and he shot most of his films. And it's like he always imbues the landscapes with this incredible spiritual force. And here is really like the contrast. This is where real people live with real problems and real and a purity to them that Paris just doesn't have. And he, he has this short scene there at the end on purpose to, to yeah, show it all, uh, show it up as, uh, as the depraved sort of place that he thinks it is. Yeah. Um, well, it does sound like a pretty uh, delicious film. <laughs> It's weird because you mentioned uh, the, uh, Petit Cancan and uh, there was also the Malut, which uh, in English was called a Slack Bay, which are really, you know, he goes for laughs and whatever you think of them, like they're, they're pretty funny and you do laugh in those films a lot and they're completely hyperbolical and way exaggerated. And I thought it was really interesting with the satire because he's not any more restrained. You know, the jokes are obvious. They're there and he sets up, exaggerates everything so much. But even though they're there, at least in my experience of watching the film, 
you don't laugh. Like he denies you that the laughter is just, and it's so implicating and so dark, the result of this, this tactic. Well, I don't know. I mean, there might be a very subjective way of wa- watching it, but I don't know that I laughed almost at all. I laughed a bit at the beginning with this scene with Emmanuel Macron. That's pretty hilarious. But otherwise, I would see the jokes and I would just kind of feel grim. No, it's really, it's really remarkable, mm-hmm. the satire, I think. I, well, I, yeah, I can't wait to see this one, you know, also because he's, I feel like he's a filmmaker where I won't say that he got into, he was getting into a kind of rut, but there was, there was just something about his movies that was just started to put me off. I, I, I wasn't, I was seeing what he was doing. I was seeing what he was attempting and the ideas he was getting across, but I, I was getting stuck, I guess is one way mm-hmm. of putting it. Um, but but it sounds like with this movie, uh, he's kind of tapping into, maybe it's because he's tapping into kind of a new source, another source of like uh, rage and creative energy um, to, to, to come up with this. Yeah. I mean, it's completely, it's a real departure. I mean, I, you would never have imagined any of his previous films could have Emmanuel Macron actually in there. There's also a scene with an actress playing Angela Merkel, and there's shots mm. of the Eiffel Tower, of the Arc de Triomphe, you know, all these things that would have been completely alien to his cinema. But I think when he made the switch to to comedy with Petit Cancan, he surprised everyone. And then basically he just seems to keep wanting to do different things, even though the first half or even more of his career was so... I don't want to say homogenous, but you know, you, you knew what you were in for when you went into a Bruno Dumont film. <laughs> this actually, it seems like generally the festival maybe w- was featuring filmmakers that and, and auteurs that a lot of people are, you know, are like, oh, it's the same old people. But it really sounds like um, many directors managed to reinvent or kind of recast what they do in, in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Would you say the same thing about Vortex, the uh, Gaspar Noé film? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I teared up in Vortex. Have you ever teared up in a Gaspar Noé film? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's like, I mean, maybe for the wrong reasons. <laughs> like it was really yeah, bad, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is not... I mean, it's still, as with all the others, uh, Memoria and Bruno Dumont, and I would say Carax, uh, I would put in that together with them as someone who like made a very different film, but still all of these are recognizably them. So, you know, this is still a recognizably Gaspar Noé film, but the very easy way of synopsizing it would be to say it's his version of Amour because it's a portrait of two elderly people who slowly move towards death across the film. And he's so tender in his, in his portrait of what it means to grow senile and Françoise Lebrun uh, from the, the La Maman et la Putain the mother and the whore plays the um, the wife and Daria Gento plays the husband and they have this really beautiful rapport and uh, this, the, the opening scene is, is this wonderful they're on the balcony and they're they're having a little wine in the sun and they're just uh, uh, Daria Argento quotes, um, I think it's Edgar Allan Poe, uh, life is but a dream within a dream. And it's this really beautiful moment. And then as the the wife starts uh, losing it slowly, you know, she walks off, she gets lost. He has to come out and, and look for her and find her in a, a completely disoriented in a, in, a, in a grocery store. It's it's done with so much tenderness that you really not expect of of uh, Gaspar Noé and then 
it goes all the way till the end and you know he he he's obviously he can be quite harsh and the the, the inevitable ending is really difficult but i think it, it shows an empathy that he's never shown before and it, i thought that was really interesting and at the same time i don't know if people are aware that it's all in split screen which is you know he does his things that he will do like the cuts are all oh i did not know yeah that. it's all in split screen and uh it, the cut it starts off in widescreen and then the in one of the very first scenes the couple is in bed and slowly the the in the, the black line runs down the middle and where between them and separates them into two separate screens and the rest of the film is all like that. And then he'll do the usual mm. things that he does, which is, you know, blinks for cuts. And there's inevitably some aspect of drugs, but there's no hardcore sex. There's no awful deaths. There's no, none of that stuff. And it's very long and very patient. It takes two and a half hours. It's very slow. And it just observes this couple and they have this crazy labyrinthine apartment full, full stacked of books. And they, it's just watching them move through this apartment and kind of mm. navigate there every day. And it's, it's, I, I was really, really surprised and I thought it was really great. Wow. But it sounds like he's able to do the kind of formal variety that he does, but instead of, I mean, in a way it's as if the formal variety isn't like mirroring the dynamic aspect of, of the subject matter. It's climax, for example, everything, you know, things are moving and the camera's crazy, but that's partly because the subject matter is kind of mm -hmm. this, you know, is dance and, and the wild energies of that. And he did a split screen film after um, Climax, uh, Lux Eterna, which was again split screen. And but that was that was kind of his um, beware of um, beware of a holy horror. Yeah, his version of that, like a film about uh, filmmaking, and it's a set, and it's incredibly like hectic, and people running around, and and it's his usual energy. And now he re he like ex apparently, I'm guessing he enjoyed the split screen experience because he re re mm. uh, uh, picked it up again, but for a completely different energy. And uh, yeah, no, it was very impressive. I definitely recommend it. And. But the funny thing is, was this also presented as a midnight screening or? No, although it was screened, I I, I didn't see the, because it was screening after I, would, uh, I left. They screened it at the very end of the festival at half past 11. Uh, it was in that section premiere, which is this new section they introduced this year where they just basically put big names that they didn't know where else to put with Deplechamp right. and Gaspar Noé. I can't remember who else. Hong Sang-soo is, is in that section as well. Uh, but yeah, he got yeah a bit screwed over, I guess, by, by being placed that late because I'm guessing a lot of people wouldn't have seen it. So it's a, it's a very slow two and a half hour film that... If it's past midnight and you've been at a festival for 10, 11 days, like, yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe they were saving him from the expectations people might might have. Maybe, but a quick, quick look at reviews, I think they've been very positive. I haven't read any, but I saw mm. just on Twitter, just people's responses, and it seemed like people liked it a lot yeah this it's it's great to see a filmmaker be able to to surprise like this because i mean he's almost completely pigeonholed i mean he's kind of backed himself up in this corner mm, yeah 
for some reason, I'm thinking back to when I saw Gaspar Noe at, at a previous can. I'm forgetting what year it was. Uh, I remember when I interviewed Lars von Trier, and I'm not like drawing any direct parallel or connection here, but I had interviewed Lars von Trier once before, and he, you know, was very mischievous, kind of giggly self. But when I interviewed him for the house that Jack built, he was really kind of subdued. It was a pretty different experience. I mean, he was, you know, still kind of funny, but just very subdued. And it was just such a contrast uh, to when I had previously talked to him. And I had to wait for my interview to start. And I was sitting there in the waiting room. And then uh, finally, I'm able to go in and who's coming out of the room with Lars Arncheer, but Gaspar Noe. <laughs> And so I don't know. I mean, it's kind of funny to because it, I mentioned this just because he, you know, casts Dario Argento, mm-hmm. Argento as you said. Um, so I don't know and because I was told that he was there to pay respects. <laughs> I mean, the the casting is also Francoise Lebrun because uh, Gaspar Noé. I don't know if in climax, you know, there's those tapes on the side, and I'm pretty sure Suspiria is one of them. And other than the horror, if it's not there, he still he he cites that film as the, one of his important. You know, he's always citing the same films. There's 2001, there's uh, Salo, and there's always the Mother and the Whore and Suspiria. So th- to have these two mm. uh, in the cast is hugely symbolic for him. Yeah, yeah. So that is Vortex, uh, Gaspar Noé, and uh, another yeah another filmmaker yet another filmmaker who is kind of. Um, doing something different and in a real substantive, substantive way. Any final film you want to mention? I mean, we did talk about, you know, maybe talking about the Jacques Audiard movie or the Hong Sang-soo movie. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'll leave it up to you. What, but yeah, where, 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 what would you be more interested in talking about? Uh, probably Hong Sang-soo because Jacques Audiard I didn't think was very good, but Hong Sang-soo <laughs> is nice. Uh, it's another, another director who would, uh, who it treats uh, with death. Death is the big theme mm. of this one. But yeah, I mean, you know, Hong Sang Su is this odd, uh, odd filmmaker because you always, it, the cliche is that he, he makes always the same film. So you always know exactly what to expect going in. But I don't know, every time he surprises me and there's this, the, the film is centered primarily on one very long conversation which of course happens at a restaurant is of course between a filmmaker and a woman and is of course involves so much alcohol but (laughs) it it talks about death in a way that i don't i don't know that i've seen him explore quite like that and yeah it's a beautiful conversation and it's really it it's the, the centerpiece of the film and it, it must be a small film that one of those that he shot, shot quite quickly because it's very simple. But to me, it's amazing how he can still draw so much material and so much emotion and like really expand his thematic explorations by always filming people in restaurants, drinking and probably engaging in some sort of sexual dynamic. Was it this year already? He had introduction in yes, yes, in Berlin? exactly. And apparently, he's edit he's editing a new uh, another film right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I know it's just sort of everyone remarks upon how much he produces, but I, I mean, I can't I can't help but point it out, you know. And especially since these aren't movies, you know, I mean, he's not. I don't want to be mean, but he's not like I'm trying to think of someone else who just kind of tosses off 
to me, more on point with Khan, we can say Francois Ozon because his competition entry was oh, like that's a, that that's someone who maybe really should take a break for a few years and reconsider things. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a great comparison. I mean, just in the sense of the frequency, because I have been just sort of puzzled by Ozon's output. It almost feels like he's a person who has like become a small industry or something. So mm-hmm. you know he. He makes the movies, he, uh, whatever, I'm sure finishes them on time. People want to work with him. And I don't know the box office figures in France, but I, I mean, I suppose they must do all right, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I was speaking to an Italian distributor and Italy is generally not an easy market for international cinema. And he said, oh yeah, no, we, we automatically buy all the ozones. Huh. Well, there you have it. Uh, <laughs> mystery solved. What about like Hong? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think France, he's regularly distributed. I live in Berlin, mm-hmm. and it's very rare. The last one I know for sure got distributed was Right Now, Wrong Then, or Wrong Now, Right Then, the, the one he won the Golden Leopard for. I remember that being in the mm-hmm. cinema, but I'm not sure he's been back since. Maybe the, the Hamburg one. But generally yeah. in Berlin, which is relatively compared to Italy, much more friendly towards art house cinema, is still very little distributed. So no, I don't wow. I don't think it's distribution. And apparently in Korea no one watches his films. Well I guess that's par for the course for a certain level of artistic success, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> your people right. that the your folks back home do not want to hear it. Well I'm um, I'm glad to hear this this latest one is another um interesting entry in front of your face. Yeah, and it, like it brings in religion as well, which I I don't hmm. feel like there is there religion in his other films because Korea obviously has a, a a very big Christian community. Yeah, but I I don't now that I think of it, I don't know that he's just treated religion head on before. Yeah, that's a good point. I can't. It doesn't really come to my mind either, except unless it kind of occurs as a strange detail here or there, or, or that's mm-hmm. something that's like a a weird detail about a character. Yeah. No, here is really quite central and it's tied into the mortality theme and yeah. Mm-hmm. No, again, yeah. like these all these variations on the on his usual aesthetic. It's 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 interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I think we've we've covered a, a lot of good movies um and managed to avoid uh, a, one one not so good movie as well. Um <laughs> any parting thoughts, any kind of final thoughts? You're 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 done. You're wrapped up, right? Uh, yeah, I finished on a high with Memoria, and that was a very good way of of leaving Cannes. It, yeah, it really it really can help ending. I I still I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but for me it's still a high point. Um, what would it have been like 2015 or 2016? Ending with the Assassin. Um, oh. Actually, what it what it was is that I ended it with a second viewing of Assassin. Uh, I had seen the Assassin, and then when they did the uh, you know rescreenings, I saw it again and. I felt great. <laughs> All right. Well, just to wrap up again, uh, there's the Fireflies Press book um, about Memoria. Um, and you've been writing for Sight and Sound. And mm-hmm. and that includes actually a uh, review of France, uh, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so be sure to, to read Giovanni's uh, writings there. And I, maybe I'll run into you at some, some, other, uh, some other festival in, in person in the future. And uh, thanks again for for, uh, for talking about all of this. No, thank you so much for having me.
At the beginning of The Night House, Rebecca Hall's character is dealing with the death of her husband, who has committed suicide. She stays in the house by the lake that he built for them and does her best to wrap up her work as a teacher. As she learns more about her husband's life, she enters a kind of emotional labyrinth that's mirrored by some very strange goings-on at the house. It's a mix of ghost story and a drama of grief, and I spoke with Hall about creating a character that's responding to both jump scares and weighty emotional burdens. At the end, she also shares the last thing she saw, and it's a good one. Also note that since we spoke, Hull's directorial debut, Passing, which premiered at Sundance, was announced as a selection in the New York Film Festival. The Night House opens August 20th. The Night House uh, is a movie about grief, a pretty terrifying movie about grief. And I think what I really admired about your performance was that I don't think you approach it with uh, what some people give as limitations uh, to the supernatural or horror genre. Um, I think you really approach it as a role that's, you know, could be in a so-called conventional drama and that allows you to have these depths. So what about it in, in the script appealed to you first? I, I think I have some sort of uh, uh, twisted impulse to make things very hard for myself, uh, to, to, to keep me sort of on my toes. You know, it's not that I, gravitate towards dark material per se it's just often this is the place where that sort of extremity of a challenge is to be found for a performer and there was a sort of set of very peculiar situations in this in that I've never really done something that is basically me I mean there are wonderful other actors in this movie but I don't get as many scenes with them as as I would have personally enjoyed, but it was, you know, and on a, but on another level, it was sort of part of the appeal was the challenge of just sustaining it off of my own energy, which was also turned out to be, of course, the hardest thing because, you know, you're not a sort of endless resource and it's, it's surprising how much, you know, actors get from other actors. You know, there's that, that old saying about you're only as good as the person you're on screen with. And I think that is true because acting is reacting and there is a lot of you get a lot of energy from someone else's presence on a stage with you, on camera with you, whatever. And this was, you know, was definitely the end point of things that I could do to make it hard on myself. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing I wanted to ask about was you know, how you sustain that, that energy and intensity, but also how you modulate it. Um, because, you know, you don't want to start off with everything. Uh, and, and that's not how this movie goes either. But you do start off in a very intense place. So you kind of have to move from the intense place of kind of a, a grief that almost shuts one down uh, mm. into, the, you know, the various other stages of grief, which in a movie like this, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk about how you, you know, are able to modulate that. And also, do you, did you shoot this in sequence or? No, we did not shoot it in sequence. We, we couldn't for lots of all the usual reasons that you can never shoot anything in sequence, really. But, you know, even if it was just me and pretty much one location, the location did morph quite a lot, which, you know, even when it's subtle to the eye, it, it takes quite a lot of work from the art department who were extraordinary on this in terms of what they did and just like very carefully modulating the space. Also brilliant on David, the director's part, because he really does 
you know, train the audience to get to know the house very well in the first 45 minutes so that he can then slightly alter it in the latter half and you're not quite sure why you feel so destabilized. I think it's a really brilliant trick. Um, so in terms of how I personally modulated it, I still did do what I do for everything. I, I tend to make a, a large chart with like a sort of giant mind map that helps me sort of know where a character's at from moment to moment. And it's a very sort of easy shorthand so that I know if it's scene 45 or whatever, I just look on the chart and I know what's happened before and I know where my emotional state was before and where it's going. So you just sort of, you kind of map it out beforehand and then hope for the best. But you know, a, lo a lot of it still, despite not having other people in the room with me, a lot of it was still reacting to circumstances and just sort of, you know, at a certain point, nearly every acting performance boils down to taking a gamble and a leap and just seeing what your body, what your voice does when you imagine yourself in that circumstance. So, you know, I think in terms of modulating, I don't know how much I plan that out as much as just try and be present in those moments. Can I ask a bit about just the chart? You mean you actually have, you kind of visualize it sort yeah. of pen and paper? Mm -hmm. It's like a large sort of, kooky looking mind map. They're usually enormous and I usually pin it up on my trailer or or make some like, you know, poor PA that has probably much more important things to do, carry it around. And then <laughs> and then I sort of, you know, that's that's sort of my working yeah. Bible for the shoot. That's wonderful. A, a wonderful insight to have into the, the craft. Is that when did you develop that as as a, as a habit or a mechanism? Is that from from the stage or? No, it wasn't from theatre. I don't. I sort of came up with it myself a long time ago, and then it just sort of stuck. Um, I honestly can't remember when I first started doing it. A long time ago. I mean, probably maybe around the Prestige time, something like that. I think I remember doing one for that. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I think, you know, it's it's the sort of big challenge you're posed with as a film actor is how do you how do you hold this story in your head when you don't know what's going to happen or you haven't necessarily shot what's happened before? Or, you know, how do you get over that problem? And how do you serve the narrative and know that you are telling the full story and try and hold the whole film in your head, even though it's not been shot and even though you don't know what it's going to look like? And there is a certain amount of projection involved that to get you through it, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly would need would need a chart. I think I needed a chart for the Prestige. I like that movie, but <laughs> I think I need a chart for my life. I like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean, just in in terms of bringing the emotion to the different phases of this movie, uh, where do you go? How do you locate that? I mean, part of what really crystallizes the movie for me is there's one scene I think where you just really break down and it all let let it all out, you know. And I mean, where do you go to to kind of get get that out? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's a certain amount of like kooky alchemy that happens with acting. I, I think, you know, and, and there's a certain amount of, you know, nobody wants to know how the sausage gets made about it. For me, it's, it basically boils down to imagining the situation. Like, can you imagine yourself in this situation and, and then just seeing what happens and like taking that, taking that risk of just, you know, jumping off the, the cliff and letting happen what happens. But Beyond that, there are tricks and things to make you feel more comfortable, but that's letting everyone in on too much, I think. <laughs> I really love the, you know, you're able to bring all these shades to the character uh, as, as well, and that kind of deepen it and complicate it. You know, for example, I like that she's a grieving, she's a grieving person. I mean, we've all gone through some, some form of loss in, in, in life, 
but you know, she's can be prickly about it, which I felt, you know, personally is very true. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes she's goofy a little bit, you know, and that's part of her personality. And I love that. I mean, could you talk a bit about sort of building those facets of her character? Yeah, I mean, that those were things that were on the page. And I think that, you know, we we all, the writers and David and myself all sort of tried to, they were there in sort of a little bit, a little sprinkling right at the beginning. And then they just sort of grew from there. I mean, it was, those were the, the things that you were talking about, the things that I found very appealing about her. I loved that she was at the center of, a genre horror movie of sorts, but also she wasn't, whilst being terrified, she also was sort of reckless and fearless and at a point in her life where she was actually running towards the danger rather than running away from it and sort of willing to take and accept anything. And I thought that made her such a sort of thrilling heroine in a horror movie because it's scary to watch someone who's reckless in a scary situation. <laughs> you know, it's, it's in a way it's more scary than watching someone who's terrified and just can't get out of the house for whatever reason. It's someone who won't leave the house. It's like, it's even more kind of like, so there's something really interesting about that. I love that she's sort of witty and dangerous and uh, mostly drunk and sort of, you know, all, all these things that just felt so sort of rich and refreshing for this idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, occasionally that, that happens when you're you're going through loss a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> there's, there's everything and there's room for everything and everything should and is allowed, you know. Yeah, yeah. I like that there are relationships in the movie, um, you know, that just aren't about her responding to to the threats and to the menace. But I mean, there are a couple other characters in the movie, Stacey Martin's character for one, and having those sort of relationships with other women is sort of interesting, I thought. I don't really recall, I mean, Sarah Goldberg's, that friendship is so fascinating uh, how that develops. I mean, was that something that was also sort of intriguing to you about this as, as a prospect? Very much so. I thought there was some real taking of the precedence of ladies in horror films, of which there is a big precedent. And then sort of looking for ways to invert, progress those ideas, change them, make it more credible, make it more, you know, all of those things. And the fact that the person that she's, I don't want to give anything away, but the, the you know, the lady friendship is really significant. And I think, I don't, I haven't seen that in a, in a horror movie that I can think of. So I thought that was really refreshing. Yeah, I think, I mean, very often it feels like the, the kind of dramatic mechanism is to isolate <laughs> the, yeah. the female character. Um, and this kind of goes- so Often they don't have any friends at all. And you're like, well, what do, what do you exist? That you exist in a vacuum and this makes right. no sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you sort of mentioned a bit about the set, all the details of that. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about more just the kind of physical space, you know, and, and acting in that space, what that means for you. It's sort of related to the old question of like, are you acting to a tennis ball and a sticks kind of thing, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the house was real for the most part. I mean, it was it was heavily art directed, but it was a, an existing house. And then it was built again on a set, slightly different. And that was at the end of the shoot. And it was, it was very clever actually, and useful for me because I'd got so used to the surrounding and there was a sort of coziness to it. You know, I'd gotten, even though I, I was, you know, in a slightly scary environment, the the house became this sort of reality zone, the couch and the, the orientation of the couch to the kitchen and the window and the door 
you know, these were all things that got very sort of geography that got very familiar to me in my brain. So when we went into the other world of it, where the couch is still there, but it's on the other side and the kitchen's still there, but it's over here and the window is slightly larger and the bedroom's got a bit more space in front of the bed than it used yeah. to. That, you know, it was a bit like, I call it, you know, when you get something for free as an actor, <laughs> you don't necessarily have to do any imagining and mm -hmm. you're you're getting a sort of sense of the uncanny and, and discordance that you don't have to work for because it's sort of there because they've done it for you. Yeah, you you kind of have a like a muscle memory almost that then you can work. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Where where was this shot? Where was it, this wasn't all just in a, in a wasn't all in a studio, right? No, it was on location um, in Skinny Atlas, so like Finger Lakey area. Um, oh. Yeah, we were on a we were on a lake, real yeah. lake, very cold, very cold, <laughs> very cold. I'll just keep saying that it was very cold. Yeah, do you? I mean, do the you, lake was very cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you draw something from that from a location like like that? Yeah, no, you, you you can. Of course you can. It doesn't always work that way because sometimes, the, you know, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes you're working against what the location really is and it looks very different on camera, but what you're experiencing as the actor is the other thing. But this wasn't like that. This was, it was spooky. You know, the woods were there. We were shooting at night a lot. So it was really 2 a.m. and I was staring out at the lake and the moon was dancing on the water and, it, you know, or it'd have to be down on the water's edge. And that was you know, scary, gives you a certain yeah. atmosphere that you can't really recreate anywhere. What is the most unsettling scene in the movie for you in, from two perspectives, like one when you were filming it and then later when you saw it? I don't know, maybe it's the same scene, I don't know. No, it's it's not, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, I'm fairly sure it's not the same scene. I mean, well, I don't know, the, the, the scene where I find the house in the woods, which was in the woods <laughs> and and it was just me in a flashlight that was pretty unsettling and there was rain and you know so you're uncomfortable and you're wet and you're muddy and then you're falling over into a puddle and you know that was that was definitely uncomfortable but that's not necessarily the one that gives me you know the one that gives me the I find the most unsettling to watch is that that the, the huge musical jump scares which there are a couple of which I had no sense of when we're shooting i'm just like i'm waking up to a loud noise and we weren't necessarily playing the noise for for the sound department or whatever so i'm just doing <gasps> acting and you know i'm i'm figuring it'll be scary and in reality but when i watched that in the cinema i did actually scream i was surprised <laughs> and i knew what was coming <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's very that's very eerie uh, yeah you know what it is something i don't know if it's i don't know if it's the familiarity the kind of comfiness of the song but then that it's happening on its own i don't know yeah, no, it's a scary idea, actually. Um, do you have a particular affinity for the supernatural scenario or the, the, does it afford a certain, I don't know, imaginative freedom that, you know, or something? I'm just curious. If... I don't know. I think people, I think there's always room for ghost stories and I think we'll always like them probably because, mm. probably because there's, it's, it's a metaphorical way of dealing with stuff that is hard to talk about, you know, yeah. death basically and I you know and, and the the end and that's it and or is it and you know what's all that stuff so I don't know I think that's why it's enduring I don't think I have a personal obsession or anything I mean I suppose a couple of things I've done have ended up having these elements and I think I 
think probably because of that. I think they just they, they yeah. it's it's easier to push things in a metaphorical space sometimes than it is when you're doing it as a straight drama. So I think there's there's opportunity in genre generally for sometimes you know more challenging ways of talking about things that are hard to talk about. And sort of along those lines, are there any uh, performances that you you admire in in so-called you know, genre movies. I only say so quick. Sometimes the best genre movies are ones you don't think is genre movies, even you know, or or even uh, are there particular performances involving grief that that you really admire? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. I think there are a lot of. I think there are a lot of actually very brilliant performances in horror movies that slightly don't get seen as that because of the genre nature, and I think. Recently, I feel Tony Collette sort of busted out of this with Hereditary, and it's an astonishing performance that yep. she gives in that. It's truly astonishing, and and should be seen on its own terms as that, and was thankfully. But I mean, before that, there's not there's a lot, a lot, a lot of great performances that have slightly gone under the radar because of that. I mean, Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby is actually an astonishing performance, and. Well, obviously there's Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Then there's, um, there is a movie called, I think it's George C. Scott, The Changeling. Oh, I love The Changeling. Yeah, yeah. He's, that is a great performance. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned The Changeling. I watched that a, a, a year ago. Um, it's also because there has a New York setting and initially he's walking through Lincoln Center or something. Right, and, yeah. And, then it all goes to hell. Um, oh, speaking of hell, um, I was yeah. curious. <laughs> what? How did you? How did you end up kind of envisioning this? I don't know. Without giving away too much about the movie, this kind of other place. Um, I mean, what was your conception of that? I don't know. I'm. I, I had to study uh, Latin, so I kept thinking of Hades. You know, when they're in the boat, of course. <laughs> <laughs> With a boat and everything, of course. I tended to just go with what was in front of me i i did i will say that i i know that there is a supernatural reading of this but i did tend to me rebecca tended to veer towards the psychological interpretation just because okay. it gave me a little bit more i guess juice in a way to think about the character because i thought i kept thinking there was something very fascinating about the idea of a woman finding out that she didn't know her husband mm -hmm. and not in the sense that we find out in the film necessarily but just on the basic sense of he took his own life and she didn't see it coming you know that is such that is the hugest shock and it's unimaginable really and I suppose what I thought is it made sense to me that a woman who is experiencing that then can take that idea to the end point. Like if I didn't know he was capable of that, then I, then I didn't know he was capable of anything. He could, it would be easier in a way to process my reaction to this by imagining that he was a monster than it is to process the reality. Because um, it's almost the same in, in, for that, in that moment that she's going through. And I thought that was, thought that was very compelling. Um, and for me, that was a, a, a sort of the fuel of the interpretation in a way. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I keep talking about just grief generally, but it's a very specific kind of grief. It's very specific kind of grief, yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to, I think, uh, our conclusion here, uh, where I just like to ask, you know, what was the last thing you saw? Uh, it could be a movie. It doesn't have to be in the theater. I know it's not easy to get out to the theater, especially 
these days, but um, but curious. Um, the movie I saw was on my television at home, and it is a old 1970s Japanese anime film called Belladonna of the Sadness. Oh wow! <laughs> Genuinely, that's... the last film that I watched. <laughs> that's really awesome. That yeah. is trippy. It is. It was, it's uh, it's insane that film. Wow. <laughs> Have you seen it? Yes. Yes, yes. I mean, it's just like someone, I don't know, like India Inc. just sort of fell all over the screen or something. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. That's that's great. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. I have to say, that's one of the best I've heard in a while. <laughs> well, you call me at a good moment. Usually yeah. it would be like, I don't know, Peppa Pig or something. So right. I, I like. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>